1 Corinthians 12, the word of God where it says, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or another you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are, the kind, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another miraculous powers. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between Spirits to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptised by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffer, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, 
second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, all those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with the gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. Thank you, Ben. Um, together with Carl's series on the question, Can We Fix the World?, and also a series of talks that I've recently heard by Brian Vartstra at a recent uh, Christian education conference, I became acutely aware of the need for Christian community to stop thinking that we can fix the world, but rather for us to have a powerful testimony in this world, employing the rich resources that equips us to use all that our living God has given us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Unless you have your head in the sand, one look at the world around us makes it very obvious that the secular worldview is becoming more and more dominant each day. The ABC's flagship program Q&A, and of course those annoying Twitter comments during the program, reminds me of that. Take, for instance, the recurring issue of same-sex marriage to our political landscape. The rest of the Western world has clearly shown that the issue will not go away until the activists and the lobbyists have it their way. And then they will just go on and find the next thing. I'm wondering why even this issue of same-sex marriage must be decided by our politicians. But we have to accept that our political landscape is often just the reflection of the society that we live in and therefore an indicator of where we're at. Now, that concerns me. However, what concerns me more is that we as a Christian community have such a great opportunity in this growing secularism to be truly spiritual, and yet it seems to go begging. It looks as if we become more and more drawn into having sympathy with the world and its seducing, self-absorbed views. In the last week alone, I have read more apologies from the Christian community to the same-sex marriage advocates for not wanting to offend them and ask their forgiveness if the Bible's view on, massi- on marriage have hurt them. Now, I'm not sure where all this political correctness is going to take us if we continue to hold out the hope that we can actually win in this domain. But I do know that we should stop trying to fill uh, and to stop trying to flirt with the secular view of the world or to have fellowship with it. It is not just simply about having different views. Uh, and uh, on some things, it is about having a total different worldview, one that sees the world from the Bible's perspective. The secular society we live in, yet with all the freedom that we have, should actually be fertile soil for us to live the Christian worldview because it has so much to offer. Our view of the world doesn't make excuses. It provides hope and glory because we have a Father in heaven who loves us. We have a Saviour that redeems us. We have a Holy Spirit who leads and guides us. We have a wonderful gospel to tell. We have a unique opportunity to witness to the world by just being different, by being spiritual, but in the Bible sense of the word. In this world, the Bible tells us, Christianity will be hunted down and God's glory will be relentlessly disregarded. Yet, we have received the most powerful resources 
to contend for the gospel, and we are extraordinarily well equipped for this task. But to be up for this task, we must first submit to the Lordship of Christ. And what does that mean? It means that we must believe that Jesus is Lord, that through the Holy Spirit he has given us powerful resources to proclaim the message in this world. These resources that he has given to us is in the first instance his revealed word, and in the second instance the majestic creation. To proclaim him in this world, he gave us his Holy Spirit, and yes, he gave us each other in and for Christian community. So in submitting to the Lordship of Christ, we believe that Jesus himself, being the gift of gifts, came to earth and paid for that which we could have never paid for, our own sins. The cause of our rebellion that removed us from God's favour and brought eternal condemnation upon us. But Christ came for that specific reason. He died to pay for our shortcomings because he was the only unblemished one who could do it. He rose from the dead, thus reconciling us to God and rescuing us from eternal condemnation. And Jesus then ascended into heaven and from there he intercedes for us and provides for us eternity in heaven to comfort and strengthen us in this broken world until he finally returns to recreate everything God sends us his Holy Spirit through which we are given gifts individually and as a community. Friends, this is the powerful gospel that we have, but that's not all. These powerful resources compels us to be spiritual in a very unspiritual world. To hold and defend the biblical worldview in the strongest of secular worldviews. And to employ the gifts of the Spirit uh, for God's glory in a world that largely lives to employ gifts for the purpose of bringing glory to itself. God gives spiritual gifts to each believer for the common good and to foster unity in the church, strengthening Christians in their defense of the gospel. And to see that more clearly, let's look at three different things. We first look at how the Spirit is working through the gifts given to us, how we should regard those gifts, and then how those gifts should be employed so that you and I may receive confidence and encouragement in what we as Christians have available to us to sustain us in this world. In chapter 12 and also in chapter 13, Paul responds to a question that the Corinthians had. It starts like this. Now concerning the the spiritual gifts, commentaries mention that the Greek word used here is not the usual word meaning spiritual gifts. I think it's charisma or something like that. But it's actually a word which means spiritual things or spiritual people. Paul actually used it back in chapter 3 when he says to the Corinthian Christians, I could not address you as spiritual. So it seems that the Corinthians are asking Paul, what does it mean to be spiritual? How do you identify a spiritual person? Now that's a great question, isn't it? A very important one too, because the answer, uh, or the different answers that we've received over time, has resulted in so much misunderstanding and division amongst Christians. It was a major problem in Corinth as well. It was a divided church. It suffered from a party spirit, 
We see it in chapter 1. I'm from Apollos. The other party, I'm from Paul. There was even a Peter party. Not you, Peter Davis, but there was a Peter party. I'm the Apostle Peter. Chapter 4 tells us about the spiritual elitism in the church. There were those who thought that they've arrived spiritually, who believed that they had all the wisdom and the knowledge and possessed all the blessings on heaven and on earth. They were already ruling with Christ. Now, amongst these spiritual elite was an emphasis on experiences, an emphasis on ecstasy and supernatural gifts, especially the gift of being able to speak in tongues. But listen to Paul's biting sarcasm back in chapter 4 when he responds to this elitism. He says, already you have become rich, you've become kings, and that without us? How I wish you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. And so he goes on to say that far from having it all and ruling like kings, the apostles are actually being treated like scum. The best question we can ask ourselves this morning is, what does it mean to be spiritual? It's important for the unity of the church in Corinth and equally important for the unity of Christians in any endeavor. And this is how the the Apostle Paul responds to the question. He first gives them a test. He says that it isn't uh, enthusiasm, it isn't miracles or ecstasies, like in verse 2. He says, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray by idols. So Paul is actually saying, uh, alluding uh, to to them and say that in their pre-Christian pagan days, when they were often carried away into the mystical rapture, they were accompanied by ecstatic speech. Such experiences were common in pagan religions and he's asking, uh, and he's actually saying to them, before you were converted, before you became a Christian, you experienced all sorts of spiritual ecstasies. You were taken up and carried away by them. And those, ext- uh, those ecstasies, in fact, led you astray so that you find yourself worshipping dumb idols. And so what you need and what we all need is some kind of test to assess what true and false spirituality is. Paul isn't denying the phenomena, but he's saying this. How do you know, is it of the spirit of God or the spirit of the devil? Because the devil loves masquerading as an angel of light, doesn't he? Nor does he affirm that by themselves these phenomena are actually proof of the Holy Spirit. But it's very confusing, isn't it? If you were in Egypt at the time, Moses surrounded by these magicians, they did the same miracles as Moses did. How would you know which are from God and which are from the power of evil? Well, Paul gives us that answer in verse 3. He says, Who is it that acknowledges that Jesus is Lord? I tell you, no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God shall say, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. The way we know the activity of the Holy Spirit is the acknowledging of Jesus as Lord both in belief and in practice. But what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Well, it means that he's God. 
It means that he rules the universe and he is Lord of Lords. It means that all religions must bow to him. It means that he is the only way. It means that he is Lord over every area of my life. And so knowing that Jesus is really Lord of my life and to find myself increasingly compelled to obey him, however much I might want to rebel against it. Now that is the mark that the Holy Spirit is really working in me. It isn't, that, it, it, it isn't this what ought to bind us and unite us as Christians, even those of different persuasions. We can have fellowship with any Christian who acknowledges that Jesus Christ is, Christ is Lord and seek to obey him. Jesus is Lord and he wants our lives to reflect that. Yes, we may fail, we may not obey perfectly, but that's still what he wants for our lives. Our personal life, our family life, our life at school or work, and even our church life. All areas of life must be under the Lordship of Christ. The only proof that the Holy Spirit is working amongst us is that Christ is proclaimed as Lord, as he really is, and that there is evidence in our daily lives that we obey him. It's a very sobering thought, isn't it? a very testing and a searching thing. It is a searching test for all nominal Christians. Are you willing to obey Jesus even when he says, go and make disciples? Or when he says, love your neighbor? Or when he says, take up your cross for my sake? It's a searching test for worldly Christians. Are you willing to obey Jesus with all your material wealth? Are you willing to obey Jesus in your business dealings? It's a searching test for our young people. Are you willing to obey Jesus in your relationships or in the pressures that you might get from peers? Jesus commands our daily obedience, something that we can be so reluctantly to give, or something that we sometimes just rationalize away or maybe even just ritualize in our daily lives. So what is the evidence that the Spirit of God is working in us? It's a genuine, practical acknowledgement evidenced in our lives that Jesus is Lord. And then Paul goes on and he talks about the spiritual gifts and how we should regard them. He starts by saying that it is God who gives those gifts. Verses 4 to 6 says there are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service but the same Lord. They are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Friends, it is the triune God who gives gifts to his people. And Paul tells us that every Christian receives a gift. Verse 7. To each one is given manifestation of the Spirit. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? If you do... No matter who you are, you have the manifestation of the Spirit. You have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is not one true Christian in the worldwide universal church of God who has not been blessed with a gift. And by giving us different gifts, God makes us even more diverse, even more different to one another than we were before we became Christians. 
This is so different to the world and even different to some other church denominations who considers gifts as an elitist commodity or churches that want everyone to conform to the same standard. When the Spirit works, not only uh, does he bring all kinds of people together from all kinds of backgrounds, but the Spirit in us begins to make us even more different to one another. Let's not forget that humans are fearfully and wonderfully made. And as they are being redeemed by Christ, that uniqueness and that variety becomes more and more evident. Verses 8 to 10 is proof of that. To one there is given the, 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 through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge. To another faith. To another gifts of healing. To another miraculous powers, prophecies, speaking in tongues. And then down in verse 28 we have some more gifts. Apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. The Spirit gives all kinds of gifts and He gives it at different times. You know what's a strange thought? That there may be even gifts today that are not mentioned in the New Testament. There's a huge generosity and a diversity of gifts and each one of us has been given these gifts. But then see what verse 7 says. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Let's not read selectively. God saves a wonderfully diverse people and gives them a wonderful array of gifts. But for what purpose? Paul says, for the common good. I hope you reflect on these things because the moment we use gifts for our own gain, we have lost the authority of what Scripture teaches. Jim Packer puts it this way. He says, Spiritual gifts are given for the good of the body, not for individual enjoyment, but for corporate employment, not to promote self, but to prosper the church, to build up, not to tear down. Spirit gifts are not toys to play with, but tools with which to do the Lord's work effectively. So how are we to regard the gifts? God has given us gifts that each Christian has been given so that we can build the body of Christ. We've all been given gifts, but how do we use them? How do we employ them? Well, sometimes our attitude is to have one of two, uh, w- uh, one of two um, attitudes towards these gifts. It could be spiritual inferiority or uh, spiritual superiority. What Paul describes in verses 14 to 26 is actually quite pathetic. Look at a couple of the verses. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. If the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, etc., etc., it's quite pathetic. On the one hand, we see a colossal inferiority complex, a claim not to have a particular gift. I don't belong to the body. I shouldn't be in the church. That's what happens when you elevate certain spiritual gifts above others. People are made to be feeling inferior by their Christian friends and think, perhaps I'm not a Christian at all. It all happens when when certain spiritual gifts are elevated And those who don't have those gifts feel that God can't be working through them 
and then they don't feel that they belong. But on the other hand, Paul shows us uh, someone with a giant uh, superiority complex. They say, I have these gifts and no one else has. Listen to what Paul says in verse 22. Those parts of the body that seems weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think less honourable we treat with special honour. In other words, we might think some gifts are weaker or less honourable, but they really aren't. Treat those who have them with special honour. Include them in church life. Love them, share with them, suffer with them. Every member has a gift that we need for the common good. There is to be no spiritual superiority, Paul says, thinking that you don't need the others in the body. So how are we to employ our gifts? Simply by expressing our unity in Christ. What does it mean to be spiritual? Well, the spiritual person acknowledges that Jesus is Lord, not just as a creed to say, but practically in his daily life. The spiritual person celebrates the diversity of gifts because they're given by God and they're used to build up others. The spiritual person sees that the gift is a wonderful expression of our unity in Jesus Christ. God gives spiritual gifts to each believer for the common good, to foster unity in the church, but to strengthen our ability to defend, to defend and to proclaim his glorious gospel in this what seems to you and me to be a very undefendable world. Our unity, diversity and our only sustainable hope in this world is the gift of Jesus. He is the gift of gifts. Employ it when we are hunted down by this world. And when we see God's glory so disregarded, let us proclaim this because you and I, all of us, have been well equipped for this task. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that, um, that, that your word is so clear on this, that uh, this passage has brought us renewed encouragement to, to sustain that very gift of Jesus Christ in a world that seems to, to have turned its back completely uh, on that message. And Father, so instead of despair, this morning we receive this wonderful new injection of hope and encouragement that you have given us gifts and we cannot regard them lightly, that you have given us uh, all that we need to sustain in this, in this world that is so disregarding and so ignorant and indifferent towards you. So Father, help us uh, to do this with great joy because we have a gospel. We have a story that doesn't just make sense, but that carries authority and that, that gives hope. And Father, you enable us to do that by the gifts of the Spirit, because you've given them to us, because you've given them to us all, because you've given them to us so that we can unite and in a strong unity of the church proclaim the wonderful gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Hear us and accept our thanksgiving in his name. Amen.